Hello and welcome to the Leadership in Insurance podcast, otherwise known as The Lip. Um, in this episode, we are joined by Bob Frady of Hazard Hub. Um, Bob is co-founder of Hazard Hub, which is an insurtech solution that I was aware of uh, due to their participation in the Lloyds Lab, um, actually quite recently. Um, Hazard Hub gives better data to insurers and it allows them to more appropriately and accurately reflect their risk profiles. Um, we get into all of it in, in this conversation. Bob's a really honest, open, engaging guy. Absolute pleasure to spend some time with him. Um, we talk about uh, raising capital, bootstrapping an organization. We talk about data and the state of data in insurance companies. Um, we talk about Bob's unhealthy um, relationship with uh, fire, <laughs> fire hydrants uh, and his obsessive knowledge with that. Um, basically, don't invite him to a barbecue unless you want to be told how risky your floodplain is. Um, but all joking aside, this is a real serious um, conversation, a very honest conversation about entrepreneurship in the insurtech space um, and data in the insurance space. Um, Bob's um, honest and open, and um, you know, those are always the best conversations. So we cover a lot of ground here. Um, as always, this uh, podcast is brought to you by uh, FinPro. Uh, FinPro is my company. Uh, it's an executive search business which operates in the insurance and insurtech space. And if you want to find out more about that, then please visit www.wearefinpro.com. But anyway, on to Bob Brady of Hazard Hub and the podcast. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Leadership in Insurance podcast. Um, I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by Bob Frady, who is uh, the CEO of Hazard Hub, um, which is an insure tech um, that's been through the Lloyds Lab, which is how we know each other. Um, hi, Bob. How are you? I'm good, Alex. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good. And judging by the sunshine, it's uh, clear to see that you're not joining us from London. <laughs> You know, I, I was talking to someone from London and they said, I opened my window and looked outside and all I saw was misery. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, that sounds like a Smith song or something. I'm like, I'm sure it's not that bad. I wouldn't put it that strong, but um, <laughs> we are at that point in the year where you wake up and go to work and it's dark and you come home from work and it's dark and, uh, and, and locked, lockdown is not a good environment for that. No, no. So, um, so where are you based out of it? Are you California? Uh, Southern California, yeah, the land of sunshine and Disneyland, <laughs> and and wildfires. The the, the the three things that we have. <laughs> That's the three things you can offer the world. But um, well, I mean, it makes sense for yeah. Perhaps you'd like to introduce Hazard Hub and, and and give sort of a good summary of kind of what you do and um, what it is. Sure, it's real simple to explain what we do. We tell you all of the bad stuff that can happen to a property. Whether it's wind, hail, tornado, lightning, hurricane, uh, wildfire, flood, ice dams, frozen pipes, underground storage tanks, there's more than 900 data variables that would deliver uh, in, in a less than two second response for any point of land in the U.S. So, yeah, that's it. That's it. But, and, and, and some other stuff about the property, like, you know, where's the fire station? Where's the fire hydrant? Uh, what's the square footage? What's the beds, baths, you know, things like that. 
Mm. I, I, I saw in your video that you said you're not the guys to invite to a party. No, it's, it's really, it's distressing because first of all, we try to find where all the hydrants are and we tell people, Hey, there's a hydrant over there. That's good for you. And then the second is we're like, because we can look it up on our phones. It's like, yeah, you're going to have a flood issue here. <laughs> one, of, one of the guys in our board of directors has a small river running through his property. I'm like, you know that you're in a flood zone. If you stand here, if you stand here, you're not, but if you stand here, you are. He's like, yeah, no. So <laughs> bought so it anyway. Can it, can it work? It works out to a specific point. How, yeah. how big can that point be? The, it depends upon the, um, um, the data that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're looking at where's my nearest fire station, then that distance is as sensitive as the point, you know, as, as, as low a level as you can get with the latitude and longitude. So if you moved over to the other side of the house, the distance would change. Yes. Uh, for flood zones, it's the same thing because those are boundaries. So any of our distance two categories, mm -hmm. it's, it's wherever you are standing or pointing is where we measure from. If you're looking at what's the, like, is the hail risk going to change on this side of the house versus that side of the house? No, it's not as, some of those risks aren't quite as distance sensitive as things like wildfire and flood. Uh, and fire protection, which are all very distance sensitive. I think um, well, this is this might be an obvious question, but I'll ask it anyway. You know, <laughs> I'm the sucker for asking the stupid questions. That's my role. Um, it, it surprises me that this isn't data that insurance companies have. Um, or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It, it is. Well, listen. You know, with enough brains and enough creativity, you could probably create a company like this, but that's like saying, you know, if I gave you, there, there's a, there's a TV show in, in America called fixer upper mm -hmm. and these designers go in and create these beautiful homes. They take basic ingredients like lumber and they turn it into something magnificent. Not all of us can do that. Sure. So there's, there's a skill in the transform the transformation of that data mm -hmm. and the standardization of that data that's really beyond a lot of people. Mm -hmm. We take it for granted because we've been doing it for such a long time, sure. but it's really a skill that most people don't have. Mm -hmm. And then they throw their hands up and they go, oh, this data is terrible. <laughs> it's so, it, it's, it's theoretically, could you do it? Sure, I mean, theoretical physics is easy to a theoretical physicist, yeah, uh, but, but not everybody can do it. And yeah. not to say that we're quite that theoretical, but as an example, you know, so some, some companies try to, and the problem isn't necessarily in the building of the data as much as it is in the maintenance of that data. Sure. Because a lot of times we'll see companies who build their own product or try to build their own product and they understand the level of magnitude that goes into it and they still do it anyway. And then they figure out, okay, we've got this great product. And now someone says, well, now you got to update it. And they're like, mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't in the plan. It's it's, it's really collecting hydrants and fire stations is really no fun, but it's what we do and we're really good at it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, standardizing government data and building models on top of that to protect risk, it's no fun, but it's what we do. Mm -hmm. So um, do, they do, should. Yeah. It's, easier to, it's, it's easier to buy it than to build it these days. Oh, sure. I mean, do, do the governments have a comprehensive kind of overview of that stuff or... Um... It, it, it strikes yeah, me as one of those things that it's a, just a bit 
exactly the messiness of it. The messiness yes. of that data is the challenge. In the, in the states, there are 50 states which are their own entity. There are 3,141 counties that are their own entity and there are over 8,000 municipalities that are their own entity. Wow. And maybe half of them agree and the other half, it, it's just, it's Michigas. It's just crazy time. So, mm. you know, for example, New York City, Las Vegas, Seattle, Los Angeles, um, all and, and Washington, D.C., all supply us their fire hydrant data. Yeah. Nashville, Tennessee, Dallas, Texas, Chicago, uh, all say it's Homeland Security. I'm like, like, have you ever really wrestled with the fire hydrant? They're very very well you're under more danger from your toilet than you are from a fire hydrant in terms of poisoning a water supply uh yet that's just how it works yeah you know sure. some some states like we we compile the nation's only collection of underground storage tanks and whether they're leaking or not um, eight states don't report whether they're leaking so we can't give that data 42 do eight don't one state delivered um the data on microfiche uh, because I think they just wanted to make it difficult for us. Uh, you know, some deliver it in PDFs and some it, it's, it's all over the board. And, <laughs> and so it's, we know that it's very frustrating. Uh, and then sometimes there's some very good data sets. Like, you know, there's, there's uh, NOAA data sets or FEMA data sets, but it's not enough to just regurgitate that data. You have to, mm you have to make some intelligence out of it. Mm. There's a ton of data out there. There's not a lot of intelligence around that data. Sure. Well, that's, I mean, that's commonly been the problem with insurance companies, isn't it? I mean, insurance companies are, have never been short of data. Um, yeah. it's, it's what you do with it. Um, you know, yeah. So the, the... yeah. And then the other thing is, you know, once the insurance company takes ownership of the data, then they become the responsible party. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're looking at, say, wildfire risk and you build your own wildfire model, now you have to explain to the state how you're not gaming your model to avoid certain types of risks mm -hmm. versus you come to a company like us and we're a disinterested third party or a neutral third party. Mm -hmm. So they can point to us and say, these guys told us that that's the score. And that's and so based upon what they say, we're going to react this way. And then it puts the onus on us to talk to the state insurance commission, which is, which is fine. We don't have any problem with that, but it gives them, I don't want to say it gives them an out, but it gives them um, a freedom. It's a pain in the neck to collect and compile this data better to have. It's, it's easier for a company to plug in and say, okay, we're pointing at these guys. A, it's standardized. B, it's immediately available. And C, uh, they're a neutral party. So it gives me some level of separation from the risk itself to say this third party is what's, is what's giving me um, the data. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's, there's probably some smart people inside of insurance companies who have data sets like this. Sometimes it's hard for them to get traction um, sure. because it's bottom up rather than top down. Yeah, and the other the, the other thing as well is you're bringing in your data agnostic in terms of you're just bringing in the best quality data to provide the the, the 
the data within the sort of area that you're interested in. Whereas an insurance company is obviously sort of looking inward most of the time. Most of the time it's collecting its own data. Yeah, um, yeah spend, your, spend your time doing that as a much more efficient resource, use of resources than trying to sort of build a, a third party provider like Hazard Hub. It's just, yeah. it's, I don't yeah. want to say it's a waste of time. It's an inefficient use of time. I was just thinking of uh, this is a very overcomplicated analogy, but it's like playing poker, right? And you've you've got your whole cards, and and the insurance company's got its own cards that it can see. Um, but by going with Hazard Hub, they're paying to see the community cards. If they if they don't want to see them, then they're playing poker without all the information. Um, I might have to edit that out because I play a lot of poker, and I'm not sure. How right, that's a that's a that's a very that's a very. Um, <laughs> convoluted <laughs> but you know it but it's true you know like when you watch the world poker tour on tv and you see the little hole cards underneath yeah you know you're kind of like the insurance company you kind of know if you want to what those cards are and yeah. and we can tell you what what some of those cards are but you got to pay for the privilege so yeah, there it's privilege. It's not, it's not <laughs> i'm gonna part my analogies and just ask questions i think that's better <laughs> um, but um, so, so you know, you don't come from a traditional insurance background at all, as far as I can tell. Um, yep. What was your background before Hazard Hub? And, and, and obviously the big question is, why Hazard Hub? Where, where, where does it sort of come from? Well, uh, as, as a friend of mine uh, used to say, I've had a career with a number of turns in it. Um, <laughs> I'm a musician by training. You know, you can see from the background. Yes. Um, being able to knit together disparate instruments to create a solidified sound is something I've always done. Um, when I, and I'm a technologist as well. Uh, so when I first started out my career, I worked for a company called National Decision Systems that built, um, and I lived in New York City. So there were a lot of insurance companies around. We mm. built models that projected sales totals down at the county and zip code level for different lines of, of insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, Liberty Mutual was my first customer and my best customer um, because they were so open about um, what they did and how they worked and taught me a ton about the industry. So I've never worked in the industry. I've always worked alongside the industry. Sure. I ended up running the insurance and investments practice for... Uh, NDS, which became Claritas and all that stuff. And that's where I met John, my co-founder. Mm -hmm. Fast, Then I spun off and went into the marketing world and did a lot of um, consumer marketing efforts. And John called me up one day and said, hey, I'm working over at this company called CoreLogic. I need some help running some major accounts. Can you help me? Yeah. So I jumped in, helped him out, ran some accounts. And while we were there, my former mother-in-law's house flooded. Um, and so we had all this data. We looked it all up and we, I asked her, I said, did you know that you were just a couple of hundred feet from a flood zone? And she said, no, you know, the insurance company didn't tell her because they don't cover flood. And the bank didn't tell her because she wasn't in the flood zone. So flood insurance wasn't required. Mm -hmm. And so the water came up, flooded out her basement and she had a big loss. And really all she needed to do was change the batteries on her sump pump on a more regular basis and she would have been fine. So we thought, wow, there's a letting consumers know this product is available is something that we should do. And the folks at CoreLogic, you know, good people, they were like, nah, we don't want to get into that business. 
And it was one of those itches that you couldn't completely scratch. So I jumped out of CoreLogic. I went back to the marketing world. I, I, I built the email infrastructure for Live Nation. I was the global head of communications for uh, outbound communications for um, Expedia and worked with some lead gen companies and saw that all this technology was used to compile data in a way that most people only dream about. The, mm. the, the, the technology world was advancing so quickly and, and so creatively that it was almost outstripping people's ability to keep up. And which was great because the more creative you were, the more you could use technology for your advantage. Mm -hmm. And so the, about five years after we left CoreLogic, I had lunch with John and Brady, who's our third co-founder, uh, and said, you know, there's a ton of new data out there. There's a ton of new technology and nobody seems to be using it. And we thought, all right, well, why don't we do it? So we, we made some screenshots we showed it to a couple of prospective customers. And one of them said, if you build that, I'll buy it. And we said, well, how about a down payment? And they said, okay. So that's how we got started. And that was four years ago. Um, and we've been bootstrapped ever since. So it, it was um, really fortuitous that we all had lunch that day. So you, sold, you sold it to your first client without having made it at all. Yeah, oh yeah, that's the way to do it. You know, <laughs> yeah, I know. But... If if you, you know, I I have this fundamental belief that you can change your life for a thousand dollars, and first of all, you have to have an idea. That's the hard part, and mm -hmm. but that's free. The idea is free. The second part is you have to write it down and you have to visualize what that product looks like, and that's easy to do now. You know, I went on to to Odesk at the time and paid a designer. I said. Actually, I used a local designer in San Diego. Here's, here's my chicken scratch. Here's what I envision. Build this and make it look pretty. And she crushed it. And so we took these screens that were just design screens. You know, they look nice and showed it to people. I'm like, yeah, I get that. I buy that. And there you go. It's, mm -hmm. like, it's like when you, it's, it's almost like looking at a 2D rendering versus a 3D rendering of a property. Completely different engagement with those tools. Mm -hmm. So that design work cost us a thousand dollars. And then we called people who we knew in the industry who might be customers. And we said, Hey, what do you think about this? That was free. So we put the three of those together, changed our lives for a thousand dollars. And now we have hazard hub and anybody, anybody can do it. You have to have an idea and you have to know some people to talk to. That's the hard part. But the middle part is the people that people think the middle part is the hardest part. And that's the easiest part which is make it look like you want it to look. Connect those two at the end and then build your own business. That's how, that's, that's how you do it. I, I, I'm sorry, I get on my soapbox about this stuff. No, 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 to be honest, no, that's the, I was really interested to hear that. I had a really good conversation with someone um, prior about the differences between VC funding in Europe versus VC funding in the US. Um, and, and in the US is much more of a kind of, here's an idea um, and I know you didn't get VC funding, but the idea of selling it to a customer before you've even built the thing, whereas there's definitely a culture in the U in Europe about like really grinding it out, building something that kind of is complete, and then going and selling it. Um, and 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 I like I'm, I'm much more kind of you, you're sort of going MVP route really. It's just like go yep. out, get get there quicker um, yep. because you're because then more importantly for me, you're getting that. If you do thousand bucks and then you get customer feedback, essentially, 
yep. you've got right these are our customers and this is what and like they're the people that are going to dictate whether it flies or not um the, the best customer feedback comes in the form of a check yes. so <laughs> or now an eft either one um yeah. it's it's really it's interesting because we never thought about raising venture capital dollars. really yeah because Why we didn't that? i had no familiarity with it mm. you know we're, look at it's old we're old guys you know <laughs> and that's that's what we thought were more the european model and then i had read the lean startup and and all that stuff and some other books about starting up i'm like let's just talk to people about it before we decide to put any more effort into this let's get some customer feedback mm -hmm. or potential customer feedback so we mm -hmm. built it we showed it and they and we just happened to ask them and and they said yes and, and it's like okay i guess we're starting a business mm -hmm. so if we had showed that first to the venture capital community, would we have raised capital? Maybe, hmm. maybe, um, but we would have had to give up a lot for that. Sure. And that, that check would have been expensive. And believe me, we asked a lot of people. The problem, interestingly, that we ran into is after we got the first customer, we got the second customer right after that. And it wasn't enough to, to be profitable, but it was enough to show some revenue. Hmm. And that actually hurt, that seemed to hurt us in the eyes of the VCs, especially early stage, because everybody wants that, you know, I want that thousand to one return. I'm yeah. like, sorry, pal, we've already done the hard work. You know, you're looking at maybe 10 or 20 to one. Yeah. And or if they had invested at the time, it would be 20 to one right now. Mm. And where we are today, never mind where we'd be in five years. But it was such an interesting thing that, um, you know, you have to decide what you want. And we don't want to give up a lot of control because John and I have been fired nine times between the two of us. And, <laughs> and like, we're just, you know, we go down the money route, we're going to piss somebody off and yeah. they're going to get us out. They're going to fire us from our own company. And it's like, yeah. they can do that now as long as again, they get sent us a big check. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, I, that, I mean, that strikes with my sensibility. I'm, I'm you know, I'm self-employed guy and um, uh, yeah, I can't fire myself. Um, yeah, I work in an industry where, yeah, you can get investment, but I just, I never quite understand why you and, do it. And, and part of it's cultural, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, you know how Americans have a reputation in the UK, you know, we're loud mouth, we're brash, we say what's on our minds, blah, blah, blah. And it's true. It's like, if we have a question, we're going to ask it. Like I'm watching this, I'm watching this TV show right now called Endeavor, which mm -hmm. is the precursor to Inspector Morris, apparently. Oh, okay. And, and nobody ever says what's on their mind. And so the show ends up lasting for two hours. I'm like, if you would ask these questions like two hours ago, we'd be gone in half an hour. And, and that is really a cultural difference where, you know, and I'm not saying this is true for everyone, but by and large, the brashness of the American um, entrepreneur is such a benefit because it's like, all right, I'm going to do it. I don't care what you say. I'm going to do it. And we're going to build it. And, mm -hmm. and we're just going to do it because there's enough people around who are like, okay, do it. And, we, and, and what's, what's interesting is when you go back to web, sort of the beginning of the computer age, you had West Coast companies like Sun Microsystems and you had East Coast companies like Nixdorf Computers and Honeywell. They lost the game because they wouldn't share. They were like, we're going to control everything. And the, and the sun people were like, Hey, let's have a party. And the West coast won. And mm -hmm. that, and that driven entrepreneurial, let's get things done mindset 
infuses everything that we do. Mm. And, and that is such a gift to have because you don't have to build the perfect product. You have to build the product that works perfectly in the minute. And that doesn't have to be as complicated as the perfect product. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, obviously the, the podcast is about kind of um, leadership from generally from an innovation standpoint. And um, I was having a conversation with a client about innovation today and, and, and they said, innovation is just the word. What we're really talking about is change. And they said the biggest, for them, the biggest difference between change and, 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 and not changing, not evolving, um, was to, to quote them, just get shit done. Um, yeah. You know, and that's, <laughs> the, yeah, you, we can talk about innovation, we can, we can put fancy graphs together, but the reality is we've got to change the way that we do things. And well, you know, to, to go back to your question about why they don't do this internally at insurance yeah. companies, just imagine the review process that you have to go through in order mm-hmm. to do that. It's like, I can, I, I, I had a conversation with a large insurer in the U.S. We hadn't talked in three years. And they said, I'm sorry it's taken so long. We've had some internal things. It's nice to talk to you again. I'm like, it's three years. The insurance train's right on time. So it's like, <laughs> it's, so the, and we had another customer who we talked, we've, we've built a database of clandestine or formerly clandestine drug labs just to, so you can make sure that the property has been remediated before you insure it. And they're like, we wanted to build that product, but we couldn't get internal approval. I'm like, I am internal approval. My, I and my two partners are internal approval. Wow. And when you only have three people in the approval process, things get to be much faster yes. than, than in big companies. And that's, you know, that's what you get from being in a small company. You get that speed and flexibility and a lot of these customers can't move that quickly. And to mm-hmm. us, it's not about innovation. It's about evolution. You know, the, the insurance model is a great model. The law of large numbers just protects a lot of bad decisions. Mm-hmm. So we're not looking at completely changing the industry. We're looking at making some, taking some burrs off the, off the, the bone to help it be more effective in the way that it works. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a... I feel bad for innovation people at, at insurance companies because they see all these cool things and they run into the wall of resistance that internally mm. that we call them the Maytag repairmen, which is an old, is like, because I'm old, I can use that one. Right. But Maytag repairmen was the loneliest repairman because Maytags never broke down. Oh, so the, yeah. <laughs> innovation people love to talk to startups because they, they get it. Yeah. Being able to execute stuff that's, that's more of a challenge. And I, and I really, and, and, you know, part of the problem that insure techs bring to the table is they're like, get shit done. Let's move. Let's go now. Mm-hmm. And then you run into this industry. It's like, give me two or three years to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And either the insure techs don't have the money or they don't have the stomach to yeah. ride out that three year sales cycle. Mm-hmm. The biggest benefit that we had going in is we knew what the sales cycle was like before we started. And part of the reason for not raising capital is, you know, people want their money. They want to see that growth. Mm. And we knew it would take a while to get the roots planted. Once the roots planted, then we'd start to see some growth. And, you know, we grew, we grew a lot. Um, we've grown 800% in, in two years. Wow. But it's most of it has been, in the last two years that the majority of our growth has started to happen. And we're really just getting started. 
So, you know, for us to double next year, shouldn't be an issue. And the year after that, we expect to double again. So, because once you get rolling in the industry, once you get that, okay, you get the thumbs up from this company, then everybody else sort of follows along. Well, and of course it's such a, it's a very interconnected industry, isn't it? More so than any other. So, and you start to get that element of, getting to know people in one company, they're only going to go and move to another company that could yep. use, you know, use your product or service and, and therefore, you know, the, the sort of good word spreads with you. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's a lot more, um, I find with the insurance, just the longer you're in it, there's this kind of thing of going, oh, you're still there. Okay, well, it must work. Then. Oh, it's, it, it's, <laughs> it, it is, it's amazing where, you know, we have, we call it the math equation. Um, you know, for insurance companies, risks are bad. Risks equal bad. Mm-hmm. InsureTechs equal risk. Therefore, InsureTechs equal bad. You know, that's the math you have to overcome. And the way that you overcome that is persistence. Mm-hmm. You know, you, there was a scene in the movie Wall Street, again, because I have gray hair, I can use this, where Bud Fox sits outside of Gordon Gecko's office every day for a month with cigars. Yeah. And, and finally, he gets let in. You have to be like that mm. in, in the insure tech space. You have to be there every day. Mm. You have to let them know that you're there without necessarily being intrusive until they invite you in. Yeah. That is how the game works. And anybody who doesn't like the game should go invent something else because yeah. that's, that's what you're dealing with. And if you don't like it, tough. It's, yeah. just, it's just the way it is. Yeah, and that's, that's also the sales, you know, it's a sales cycle as well, isn't it? At, at that, when you're selling to companies of that scale, the process you have to go for, the, 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 just the admin, the admin of dealing with companies at that scale is, is, is something else. And I think that's something that, you know, it's so interesting that you come in with that, with that knowledge. If you came in with nothing else, it was just this is going to take time, as you yep. mentioned. So, um, Obviously, uh, taking it back to the, the Lloyd's lab, because I, I, that's how we came across each other. Um, when, when did you go through? What cohort were you? Uh, I think this is cohort five. We're actually in the middle of it right you're now. You're in now, aren't you? That's right. Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. In. Our demo day is November 18th. 19th? 18th, 18th or 19th. One of the two. Uh, so, yeah. And it's been such an interesting process. It It, it is. It's like. We, we came up with a, uh, a pre-presentation mm-hmm. and the feedback was, it's great, but it's too detailed. Sure. I'm like, oh, no, okay. So now we're going to simplify the story because really everything comes down to story. It's like, do you have a good headline? If you don't have a good headline, it doesn't matter all the details. Mm. And this, this frustrates a lot of people, especially people who are very good at tasks. They're like, can't people see that I know all this stuff? And the reason is you don't have a good headline. Yeah. You know, it, it's like some jerk who walks in and is like, I'm going to solve this problem. Here's how it's going to work. And we're going to get it done in this timeline mm-hmm. versus somebody who has a, a giant spreadsheet of a plan with Gantt charts and everything. The person who brings the confidence story wins the game more often than the person who knows what they're doing. Yeah. And that's just a sad reality of life. You know, it's mm-hmm. not a sad reality. It's a reality of life. Mm-hmm. And you have to reflect that in what you do. So um, even though we kind of ignored that in our first presentation. So, and, and, and really it, it comes down to one simple fact. 
is these Lloyd's members by and large are flying blind when it comes to risk because it's been so expensive to get risk data on the front end, they can't set the correct technical price. Mm. So their street price is below their technical price and then they end up getting put in relegation, excuse me, in runoff uh, if they're not careful because they don't know what those risks are. You know, a lot of times reinsurance, uh, excuse me, uh, cap models get run after you bind the contract. It's too late yeah. by then. You're yeah. already married, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and so what we're trying to do is push much, much more data right to the point of decisioning so people can make smarter decisions about what their price should be. Now, mm -hmm. listen, at the end of the day, we're all chasing premium. I get that but at least know that this premium comes with a certain amount of peril that this premium does not. That's what we're trying to do. Like 95%, and, and this number was astounding when we saw it, 95% of hurricane losses over the last five years are in F hurricane zones from our model. And yeah, a lot of that's Florida, but it's true for Texas, it's true for South Carolina, North Carolina, Louisiana, it's true for every state. Risks happen they don't happen in surprise places. Mm. And we can identify that right up front to let you set a better technical price. Sure. Now, what you choose to sell for, that's your call. Um, how you choose to use that data, again, that's your call. We're an ingredients provider. Um, we provide better, higher quality, less expensive ingredients. Mm. And what the customer does with that is really up to the customer. That's their competitive advantage is to use it creatively. Mm. I suppose that there's, there's always a challenge, isn't there, against there's the kind of writing for volume and writing for value, which is what people talk about, is, is there's a lot of, definitely a lot of kind of, um, you, you know, people want to write big portfolios, they want to write yeah. big numbers, and, yeah. and, and there's a little bit of a contradiction between that and writing good business, I think, um, mm -hmm. so, you know, have you, have, you, have you ever got the sense that maybe this is, in a way people don't want to know at that granular level of detail there's a res or there's a resistance anyway yes we're still here you know <laughs> and we've been here for 100 years thank you very much yeah yeah and yeah. move and, and move along yeah, and sure. and listen ceos get fired over bad loss ratios mm, yeah. and companies survive but people don't mm. um, when you have bad years mm -hmm. and you know we're, we're Companies have to lay up, lay people off, you know, it, it, and really what it comes down to is there are no bad properties. There are just bad premiums. Sure. And what's the right premium to set for a particular property? You mm -hmm. could write an underwater aquarium in the middle of a river if you wanted to get the right price, you know, and, and it, 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 that's what we're trying to do. So, yeah, there's always this, well, we're big, so we're not going to worry about it. But there are so many new competitors who are data focused, who are coming into play that <laughs> just leave you with the bad risk because you're, you know, it, in poker, if you don't know who the patsy is at the table, you're the patsy. <laughs> and, and that's what it's coming down to with data. If everybody else has that data, if you've got that chart that says, okay, you know, here's how to play every combination and you're the guy without that then you're going to lose because you're going to get all that premium. Like, Hey, this is, we're writing premium like crazy. And then they have a bad year and they go to 120 on their loss ratio mm. and, and bad things happen. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I was having a conversation with someone about, you know, there's obviously been a lot, there's been rate rises across the board pretty much. And, and, mm-hmm. and some of the sort of percentage rate rises are very dramatic. Um, but I was having a conversation with someone that the rights are sort of related business to yours, as in they provide better data, but in different areas and different categories. Um, and they were saying everyone's very excited about these rate rises, but on our model, the price still isn't high enough, you know, and that's, yeah. and they were saying that that applies to quite a few categories they've looked at is that, yep. you know, we're letting, and almost you're sort of the tails wagging the dog there. You're sort of, you're giving a price in order to win business, but, but the price is, is still not enough to actually yep. write it with a sort of the appropriate level of acceptance of risk. Yep. You know, listen, no matter what tools you have, you're still going to have losses. It's part of the social contract of insurance. That's mm. why insurance exists is to cover mm. those losses. Mm. You know, it, it's almost a socialist approach where, you know, the, the, the money of the many pays for the needs of the few, um, which really irks people when you tell them that in the insurance business. I'm like, you know, it's a socialist, socialist system. Um, <laughs> well, it's the law of large right. numbers. That's how it works. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and, and you're right, you know, the, the, in California, for example, homeowners insurance is too cheap. You know, we don't have wind, hail, tornado and lightning, but we do have tremendous wildfire reserves. Mm. And if you have a commissioner who wants what we'll call fair pricing and not sort of risk adjusted pricing, you have to figure out a way to rise the tide for everybody to make sure that we can pay for the needs of the few. Mm. and and it's a vi- it's a micro risk in terms of six percent of the population is in the highest wildfire risk in california but the average loss is four hundred thousand dollars so mm. it's, it's it's pretty pretty high yeah, yeah um so you know those are questions that how much is is too much and that's a question that is really tough from a social standpoint for insurance companies to answer because their response is, well, I'm just going to pull out of the state. And that doesn't help anybody. Yeah. Um, but it's, it, it does lead the way for innovation, you mm-hmm. know, for data smart companies with actuarially sound approaches. It, it's just wait. You know, if your price is higher right now, just wait. Market will harden. You'll be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a tough. That's a very, that's a much bigger question than we can answer or would even try to answer is systematically you want fairness and pricing. What does fairness mean? And that's a much bigger question to an insurance commissioner than it is to an, an insurance CEO. Yeah. Um, you know, the insurance commissioner might say everybody gets low prices and the insurance commissioner would say, I want to properly risk adjust that price. Excuse me. The CEO would say that. And there, the battle is engaged. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's Absolutely. the. It's so it's tough. It's, it's yeah, tough. well, uh, there's there's been obviously this big drive towards, and and, and obviously Hazard Hub plays a little bit towards this, um, the personalization, the true personalization of insurance, and yep. um, you know, looking at route, it's analyzing your driving style, getting mm-hmm. you to a certain point. Now, with driving style, that's fine, but then when you look at things like where people live, um, if you're priced out of like, let's say, for example, uh, take it to its extreme, you're priced out because of your financial situation of anywhere that isn't a floodplain or a fire risk. Mm-hmm. But then then you're living in a place which you cannot afford to insure because the price is so high. 
because yep. it's so personalized. Um, yep. and, and obviously the, the biggest concern then becomes about health as well, because, you know, right. people, people are going to walk around completely uninsurable. Um, well, but, that, that's where state insurance pools come in. Like, exactly. You know, fair plans come in and things like that to maintain, but even the fair plans can't get the appropriate rate sometimes. Mm. And then they end up putting a tax back on the admitted market, but a robust fair plan market, I think is a great thing mm. because the, the actual claim experience is small, you know, for every hundred policies, if you have three claims, that's a lot. Yeah. So the, the claim incidence is relatively small. Mm-hmm. The, so if you took all of the worst risks and spread them around, there will be years where you have terrible years, but there will be years where you will not have terrible years and you reserve that money. Um, but put that in a, in a pool and, and then let the pool get managed appropriately. It's, a, it's an excellent way to look at it. The problem is it's, 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 a, it's a political cluster to try to get that stuff all done. I was going to go, I was gonna say we're going to get called socialists again, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> Fine, whatever. But we had, obviously, as soon as COVID hit, there was a big talk about, you know, having a, a pandemic, a pandemic re in a similar way that we've got flood re um, over here. Um, but but the, right, the, the right criticism as well was that, look, we can't just say every solution that kind of challenges the model that we currently operate within just get stick in can't all just get stuck into a public fund um yep. we need to kind of try and be creative and try and come up with different solutions and, and obviously there's been lots of talk about parametric solutions and um and and look i'm a i'm a third party to the insurance industry and certainly not my place to say but i think it's you know it does throw up interesting questions the more we're able to kind of really accurately using things like hazard hub work out the cost of a risk that you know the, the, the true risk um opportunity we do run this kind of we're, we're going to isolate certain certain areas that are uninsurable under traditional means so what 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 are the solutions to that and um um that was more of a statement than a question i appreciate that's no it, huge, it's a huge question <laughs> it, it it makes me think of um a friend of mine in the industry, there's a company in the U.S. called Kin Insurance that writes in catastrophic areas. And their CEO, Sean Harper, said, there's a fundamental flaw in the insurance industry. And the reliance on actuarial models is a fundamental flaw because the actuarial model is based upon input from the customer. Yeah, sure. It's like the customer has to tell me all these things. And then I judge, well, what if the customer is not telling you the truth? Or what if the customer doesn't know and guesses, yeah. you know, does the customer know what their annualized risk of hail is at a location? No. Nice. So all of these assumptions that you make about actuarial models being the be all and end all are kind of faulty mm-hmm. because of the human level of input that's required to get the data necessary to feed that model. Yeah. And I was like, that is, that's a brilliant observation. Mm. So when you, make the assumption that the actuarial approach needs some level of adjusting on its own. It opens the door for you to be much more creative than if you are trying to force fit everything into an existing motif. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that, that was such an eye opening conversation we had. It's I'm like, you're right. You know, so it's, it's so true of many things though, isn't it? That you think about that from a, a cybersecurity um the, the, the biggest flaw in cyber is 
human error, like or oh, yeah, um, the, the, yeah, and it's like the well, in my business, the, the biggest flaw in hiring good people is people. Um, we can identify quite quickly who are, you know, if you said to me, Alex, find me the head of uh, marine liability, you know, fundamentally that that's not the challenge. It's, it's the human interaction. It's the, have you got a skilled interviewer or, um, you know, are you going to sell that? But um, if they walk into a room and it's the human bit that will go wrong. Um, yep. But, but yeah, the same with insurance as well. I, I can't remember who I was talking to, but um Oh, it was David Hughes at um, Mulberry Risk. Um, and we were talking about, as he, you know, he's an insurance professional. He worked as a chief actuary. And then he was trying to do insurance on his home. And they were going, well, when was your house bit built? And he's got this um, sort of uh, converted cottage. And he said, well, this bit in like 1600, this bit in 19, you know, which bit? Um, yeah. So the information is, is, is flawed because at that point, even the question was wrong. So, um, yeah, we just, we just need to take a view of, it sounds like you know the actuarial thinking is correct, but it, the assumptions feeding into that might yes. not be. Yeah. So um, you know, a bit like Hazard Hard, and what what I like to think about a lot of the insure techs that we talk to, it, it's it's not replacing, it's not saying right, you guys are doing a bad job, or we're replacing that. It's giving people better tools yeah. to do their job better. Absolutely. Yeah, that's it. You know, we're not about we're not about revolution. We're about evolution. and one of the like i filled out an application for homeowners insurance a couple of years ago and i got so mad because it was asking me things like where's the nearest fire station how far are you from the nearest fire hydrant you know all these questions that is how many square feet is my house all of which is available in our api feed or feeds from other people Mm. and I'm like, why are you doing it this way? You know, mm-hmm. we have some customers who are down to four questions for yeah. homeowners insurance and they are actuarially sound because it's, it's only four questions that need to be answered. All the other stuff has been pre-answered and that's where we come in. We're like, here's the pre-answer. I don't need you to ask these questions. Maybe you want them to verify it just to make sure that, you know, we're on the same page, but I don't need you to tell me where the fire station is or where the fire hydrant is or how far you are from the coast or, what the annualized risk of wind, hail, tornado, and lightning are. I don't need any of that, you know, because I already have it. Mm-hmm. So if, if you eliminate that from the decision-making process, A, you can price much faster, and B, you can price more accurately. And yeah. that's, that's what we're about. Yeah. Well, look, that's, um, I've, I said I said it would sort of take 45 minutes, and I think, I think we're about there. And I think that's a brilliant com- conclusion um to kind of what we've been talking about you know helping people things do better and faster um because that that's it right the insurance industry works the law of large numbers works um but it's got to evolve and it's and and most of that is about doing things quicker and better um so yeah no look thank you bob that's really kind of you to take the time i really appreciate it um and my pleasure before we sort of close off, though, um, you know, what's what's next? Obviously, you're finishing out the kind of um, Lloyd's. You've got to do your demo day. What's what's going on with Hazard Hub in, well, this year's been, <laughs> been a tough year for everyone, but maybe let's look to next year. Sunnier climbs of next year, hopefully. We just released our uh, catastrophic flood model, which is the mm-hmm. first of its kind in the industry. You know, people get wet and they're surprised. It's like, well, it's because you got too much rain. Um <laughs> And we can, we can 
show you that. So we got that out the door. I, I think that without giving away too much sure. uh, from a surprise standpoint, yeah. uh, our goal is to deliver even more relevant and meaningful data about the point that you're sitting on. So the risks are what they are and we'll do a even better job of, of getting data to improve those risks. But what are some of the elements that you need to know about the property that you don't necessarily have today? That's our 2021 uh, goal. I, so I don't mean to sound cagey, but I want to make sure it works before we talk about it. <laughs> no, I, I, I like it. It's like a cliffhanger. We can follow yeah. up. We'll follow up next, next year. Next year. Next yeah. on Hazard Hub. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was really kind of you spending time with me, Bob. I really enjoyed that. And um, look, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to kind of hearing more about Hazard Hub in the future. And um, But we'll definitely stay in contact. Sounds good, Alex. It's good seeing you this morning. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye. So there you are, Bob Frady of Hazard Hub. Uh, and believe it or not, that is episode 10 of the podcast. Um, I want to thank everyone that's been involved so far. Um, it's unbelievable how open and welcoming the insurance industry is uh, to someone starting something like this. Um, if you'd like to be involved in the podcast, if you're a leader in the insurance industry and you feel that you've got something to say, um, particularly about sort of change and innovation um, or just an interesting story, then obviously we'd love to hear from you. Um, we're very fortunate in that we're we have another 10 episodes already in, in, in the can, I think they say. Um, so we're already up to episode 20 in terms of recordings and, and we're kind of releasing them out as we go. Um, but I'm always open to meeting and you know having a conversation with interesting people. So I'd love to hear from you. Um, thank you to everyone that has been a guest and has been kind enough to spend some time with me so far. Um, thanks once again to Bob and Hazard Hub. And I look forward to hearing from you soon. Um, if you want to find out more about what I do um, in the insurance search space, then please visit www.wearefinpro.com or you can reach out to me on LinkedIn or any other social media platforms. Um, I hope you have a great day. All the best. Take care.